Hey guys. Hey Daniel. Hey Daniel. How are you this oh. morning? What's up? Doing How do you well. feel about the uh, Super Bowl results? I was pretty happy. I was happy. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. My team won. It's okay. And everyone said they wouldn't. <laughs> the Chiefs don't know how to win without refs. Oh, look at refs. We starting that way. That's how we start. Look at he touched me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, let's not go. Moving, (laughs) moving on. Here we go. So, um, one of the things that has been discussed um, in getting feedback on this podcast has been um, that it's a pretty uh, heady, pretty heady topics. Lots of theoretical discussion, philosophies, Hmm. things like that, and and uh, there's a desire to see it kind of turn more practical and uh, we definitely want to shift uh at some point from uh, to the practical from the theoretical however much of the journey to where uh we are today was enabled um you mean our be- culture in the culture yeah because the church actually uh kind of became chronically focused on the practical yeah pragmatic pragmaticism uh, yeah just the love people and and don't worry about the the philosophy don't worry about the the theology stuff um just you know do the do the works of jesus and so clearly i wanted to start off with a reading uh from second corinthians oh yeah starting in verse three it says for although we live in the flesh we do not wage war according to the flesh since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the de- demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to uh, obey Christ. And uh, clearly Paul is equating spiritual warfare to some degree uh, with intellectual warfare. Oh, for sure. Um, and so uh, that's kind of the heart behind even the name of this podcast is we pulled it from... Romans chapter 12, where it says, don't be conformed to the wisdom of this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind in, in the word mm-hmm. of God. And um, Additionally, uh, we want to be all things to all people. And how can we be all things to all people if we don't have a knowledge of the prevailing worldviews and philosophies? Mm-hmm. Um, also, we're, you know, uh, we're walking through the book and Truman is laying a foundation, the philosophical foundation. And so it'll be, it'll be theoretical for, for a little bit longer. Um, but with that being said, uh, we will certainly work to help make this touch the ground more. And, uh, so yeah, we'll have some questions lined up for that, but yeah. What are your thoughts in general on the, uh, on the topic or on the, the chapter? It's a depressing chapter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What what a discouragement that this is still true today. Like you can you read it and this is accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's that's what's So you felt when you got to the end of it this this is uh bleak. Like this just Yeah, where do you go from here? The fa- well, the fact that mm-hmm. this has come in these uh ideas have genetically kind of come into our Sure. Con- yeah, the initial the initial ideas of culture. Hegel, Marx, Nietzsche, and I guess that uh, Truman focuses on Oscar Wilde as being the quintessential person representing all these things. Oh yeah, but um, everyone holds these views, or not? The culture holds these views at a very foundational level. They build upon it, but they don't draw them to their end conclusion. And Truman exposes yeah. Marx, Nietzsche, that they actually took it to their end conclusion, and so they, they brought it there, but our culture doesn't. Yeah. And mm. they still hold with two hands morality and pure subjectivity of human nature, human life. So don't don't you think that, oh, so my view of that, I think you're exactly right, is that the modern culture, because I, w- I was reading this thinking, oh yeah, this is just the path to nihilism. Hmm. 
this, this is the mm. path to nihilism. If you if you want to know what it's like to be a nihilist, yeah. mm. uh, or a nihilist, however you pronounce that, um, <clears throat> if you want to know what it's like to just think that life is meaningless, purposeless, there is nothing transcendent about our existence. There is nothing immaterial about it. Yeah. There is nothing to answer to. And that just is the, the worldview of nihilism. This is the philosophical foundation of that, yeah. right? But in our modern culture, I was thinking, well, yeah, but Western culture today has the benefit of having been Christian. Hmm. And so we have the form without, uh, we yeah. have the form of godliness without its power. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when you look in uh, culture today, you see, I was just, I don't know why, but I was thinking of Will Smith. I was thinking of his confession because I watched his confession after he slapped Chris Rock, yeah. who's a fellow actor uh, who made fun of his wife, for those of you who don't know that. Um, but, but I watched his confession, and I thought, this is, this is very religious. Like, this is a very religious thing to do. Mm. He's confessing his sins. Mm. Mm. But the culture cannot offer him any atonement or absolution, mm -hmm. they can only author, offer him catharsis because they don't have the substance mm -hmm. of religious thought. So, so, we're, so our mm -hmm. culture is different, though, because we, we still benefit from having Christian morality or Christian ethics, yeah. from having a Christian worldview. But doesn't that, in some ways, actually, you say it's a benefit, and I absolutely agree, um, but doesn't that, in some ways, kind of inoculate the culture against the gospel? Yeah. Because hmm. uh, one of the appeals in the past used to be morality, hmm. and they go, "We have that morality. We, have we don't it. need, we don't need, you exactly. know." Though they don't understand that their feet are on, you know, on mm -hmm. ice, stand, you know, standing on that sand, and not yeah. and not on yeah. the yeah. solid rock of Christ. But Greg um, Greg Kukul, uh, who's a Christian apologist, wrote a book. Um, I think the title of it is "Feet Firmly Planted in Midair." Hmm. And the whole idea is the postmodern ethic is just that. They, they really do um, they, they really do benefit from a Christian worldview in ways they cannot even have never thought about. Yeah. Yeah. right? But they don't acknowledge the foundations of their moralistic mm -hmm. yeah. uh, worldview. Yeah. Hmm. And, but here, we're talking about guys who were genuine nihilists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. genuinely thought, no, 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 let's reimagine uh, where this might take us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And well, wanted to take it there, yeah. Mm -hmm. Before we jump into, the, into some of the readings from the chapter that I want to touch on, um, the title of this chapter is Prometheus Unbound. Yeah, what does that mean? Because um, yeah, he so didn't Patrick. mention Prometheus. Yeah. He didn't touch on it. Okay, so Prometheus is the Greek titan god of fire and being a trickster. But he, in some accounts, he's also... Accredited with creating humanity out of the clay, but what he did was steal fire from the gods, give it to humanity as a way to advance them, give them technology, civilization that they can now be their own um, individual people apart from being dependent upon the gods. Zeus got angry, and now punishment to punished Prometheus to eternal conscious punishment. And so, I think the reason for his title is because we are Prometheus, but we are trying to advance ourselves. But we too, like Prometheus, are going to feel the wrath of God for stepping out on our own. We want to advance ourselves, and that's what yeah. Marx, Nietzsche, Hegel, but all yeah, these philosophers are trying to do. The, the unbound mm. part may be that you know, uh, you know, Prometheus was bound by the gods, mm -hmm. and yeah, 
you know, uh, Nietzsche and Marx were both so focused on casting off the shackles right. mm -hmm. sure. of, of theism, not just religion. Yes, specifically religion, specifically Christianity, but theism in general. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, well, mm -hmm. good start to this. Right. Uh, do you guys have any passages that stood out to you in particular, or you want me to just start running through this? I did. Um, page 54. I think it's 54. I use the electronic version, so I hope my pages align with yours. But essentially, he says Mark belie Marx believes that the world is all that there is, that there is no transcendent realm, no god or gods mm -hmm. behind this material universe that might provide a, a sacred foundation for any moral order. Wow. But Marx's materialism goes further. He believes that the material conditions of life, specifically the economic relations that exist between people, decisively shape how we think of reality. In short, it is those economic relations that have the most profound impact upon our self-consciousness and, and our identity. This also means that how we think about reality changes over time because economic relations change. So, so I was thinking about that passage and also thinking about Deuteronomy 10 and 1 Peter 1, this this worldview seems exactly the opposite about what the Bible teaches us about the foundations of human morality. Yeah. Right? So the foundations of human morality are Deuteronomy ten, seventeen through nineteen. Yahweh is your God and you are his people. Nailed it. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> Yahweh is your God, you are his people, and this is your purpose. You mm. shall live this way, because Yahweh is your God. First Peter 1, 14 through 16, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former desires you used to conform to in your ignorance. So Peter thinks that the way of the world is just ignorant. It's ignorant of God. But as those who called you, uh, the one who has called you is holy, you yourselves be holy in all your conduct. So our morality, whether it ties into ec economic status or whatever it ties into, is is anchored and rooted in God himself, who is the paragon of what it means to be moral, what mm. it means to be right, what it means to be pure and true. And, and I, as I read that, I just thought, wow, that could not be more starkly different mm. than the worldview according to which we live. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, he is rooting, uh, he says here, the, like you said, uh, Specifically, the economic relationships that exist between people decisively shape how we think of reality. He's rooting reality in not just the, uh, in some ways, not just uh, the creation and the the purpose that was given to man to work and to you know produce. Right. He's rooting it in the fall. He's saying that right. the, the reality of life is the fall. He bypasses mm. creation entirely. And says that's a great mm, observation. Yeah, and he's rooting it in that uh, anyway, uh, mm. which is incredibly depressing. That that is the, very depressing. That that is the ultimate reality mm -hmm. is the fallen nature of man. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Good. Good. Um, jumping back really quick to uh, uh, where is it here? Oh, so uh, what's interesting is if you if you want to learn so Marx. Marxism is my particular pet peeve. I, uh, I have a is sniffer. It? I didn't know that. I have Daniel. a sniffer for it, and uh, I generally I would don't, never have guessed that. I generally don't try to demonize uh, uh, 
differing political views. But you'll views. make an exception for Marxism. <laughs> Except for the fact that I think that Marxism is demonic. Yeah, it is demonic. Um, it is demonic. Partially because it's rooted truly in anti-theism. Um, and it is... It's satanic, actually. Fundamentally committed to the destruction right. of, of the Christian faith. Just, um, just real quick, if you want to read a good book on that by uh, political science professor Paul Kingor, he wrote a book called The Devil and Karl Marx, Communism's Long March of Death, Deception, and Infiltration. Karl Marx was a huge fan of Satan. Like in Marx's writings, he literally held Satan out as the paragon of rebellion Mm -hmm. against order uh, and his desire to literally burn everything that exists down. Mm -hmm. So so it is quite, what you say is not just a pejorative, yeah. Or it's not pejorative at all. It's reality. This guy thought in ways that were satanic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he lauds Satan in his writings. And so this book uh, by Paul Kangor is quite eye-opening. Yeah. yeah. You just said it really well. Um, yeah. But if you want to understand Marx, you have to understand Hegel. Uh, a guy named James Lindsay has mm-hmm. a really good series of talks on this. Um, he's not a believer, um, but he uh, he does kind of give a theology of Marxism and shows that this is actually a religion in itself as an anti-religion. Um, and he, and he discusses how it comes out of Hegel. Um, and on page 53, halfway down, it says, uh, once Hegel placed human self-consciousness at the center and observed how this changes over time, the question of the deeper sense of human nature became far more urgent. We might summarize Hegel by saying that he saw true full human nature as something emerging over time, as something to be realized by a historical process that would terminate at some point in the future, um, hmm. which is actually a really great summary of a very complex uh, mm-hmm. thought process with wow. Hegel. Um, but what's interesting is Hegel, Hegel was a uh, Hegel and Marx uh, were both alive during the the rise of prominence of uh, Darwinist thinking. Right. Um, and so that concept of human nature is evolving um, it became part of part of their philosophy. Um, and uh, so, yeah, then we move into what you read. It yeah. becomes this materialist dependent upon just right. the, the economic relationships of, yeah. of humanity. Um, and real quick, just because you asked to keep us in the practical a little bit, the reason that that is important to know about human nature evolving and people even now, uh, understanding what it means to be human changing is because that automatically means if our self-understanding is changing what it means to be human, you therefore cannot have an objective morality no. because that changes right. as you change. Yeah, good point. So therefore, um, you know, in the past couple hundred years where we kind of started with the first podcast of how do we get where we are now where men are saying they feel like a woman and stuff like that, well, that's understandable when you understand that human self uh uh, discovery changes over time. Therefore, you can't tie that to objective morality. So morality is changing with us. Great point. And so if we're not understanding that their understanding of morality is changing, and while yeah. we're trying to tie it back to creation, we're operating on different playing fields And altogether. how do you guys mm-hmm. practically with, the, with uh, and I asked this question before a few podcasts ago, just with teenagers, how do you address that? Like this is, as Daniel yeah. was saying, th- this is pretty theoretical and philosophical. Yeah. Which I would argue is not impractical. But 
Uh, but how do you deal with the practical realities with kids and teens and just their parents of, of trying to help them to understand this this is a jacked up worldview. This is a yeah. jacked up way to live. This is not yeah. <laughs> preferable. I think you try as much <laughs> as you can to do two things. One, uh, train them up, kind of like what our Contrast Brings Clarity class seeks, seeks to do. You yeah, train oh them yeah. up in the Christian worldview. I'm glad you guys can, are doing that, by yeah, the way. Where they e- can explain like, to everybody what you're doing. Yeah, so, well, I'm teaching a Theology of Parenting class. Uh, and Which is also a, important. Yeah, 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 it is. And then um, we have a, a, a guy who's had some experience teaching a uh, Contrast Brings Clarity class where it's talking about the differences between Christianity and the LDS faith um, by seeking to focus on the fundamentals of Christianity where you come to recognize that kind of the sniffer test, that that's different, right? right? That's not true Christianity. Right. So right now, the, the youth on Sunday mornings are going through something similar, uh, just geared towards their age and Great. their understanding. So mm-hmm. I think that's one part of it, is you seek to focus on, hey, this is the Christian worldview. I want to train you up in this so that you know this, right? And the other but part of it... But a, teaching a, a, an intellectual difference between these two yeah. worldviews, that's very practical. Yeah, yeah, I think so as well. I yeah. mean, I think that's I think that's very yeah. hands-on, because you you act out of your thinking, yeah. and if your thinking is messed up... Mm-hmm. Totally true. That's, that's yeah. where we're going here. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, I was just going to say real quick, that the second thing that I was... I want them to see where the logical entailments of that worldview go, Yes. Mm-hmm. and how it does have a shaky ground like we've Great. been talking about. So, yeah, I'm... I often tell them exactly what you're saying. Uh, right thinking leads to right living. I don't mean that in just the sense of good morals. You know, I, I mean that in the sense yeah. of a Christian worldview and understanding and thinking rightly about God affects. You know, theology is a, immensely practical in all of life. Right, so. right, right on. Absolutely. Yeah, Josh, so. have anything to add to that? Um, oh, it's on. <laughs> <laughs> you're on. Yep. Um, no, I think that's. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, uh, the best way to combat, um, I think, like when when I raise my kids, um, what I'm going to be primarily focusing on is raising them up strictly in the Bible. Um, I, I'm a little scared <laughs> to put them in public school um, as I'm seeing like the just time go by um, and the worldview shift to being something so anti-Christian. Yeah. And yeah, just raising them up in the Bible um, and teaching them the truth is going to help them to see um, what is false. So. But I think mm-hmm. in bouncing off of that, mm-hmm. Josh, as much as what happens and transpires in the world is, is different and counter to us, exposure to it is what is going to actually help build them up a tolerance to it. So if I just hide kids away and keep them from these ideas and yeah. thoughts, then they'll experience them when they're outside of my frame of reference. Fear of influence is probably a better way to say it. And then someone else will be able to twist their ear, turn their knowledge. I want to engage them with these things while they're in my house, in my home. And that can be going to public school. It can be living in the world, having friends. But I want to engage with them. What are my kids learning? What are they picking up? Asking thoughtful questions. I was encouraged by a, a father recently who was talking about just discipling his kids and engaging with them. And he's saying, I'm really looking forward to sending my kids off to school. Wherever they go, they will hear nothing from the world that I haven't already talked to them about, Um, including all of these worldviews. He said, I I want to show them where they attack Christianity and for them to really wrestle with what are are some of those hard things that Christians have to wrestle with. I I think Mm -hmm. there are trade-offs for both models, you know, not to get into a discussion about homeschooling versus public school. (laughs) But Carrie and I have public schooled our kids the majority of the time, and and there are trade-offs to both. If your kids are in public school, you will have to work 
quite a bit harder uh, to kind of inculcate the Christian worldview and make sure that they don't uh, contract a false worldview from the world, which they're surrounded by every day, actually, in public school. Um, On the other hand, every one of my kids, I can think of lots of examples in which they have been a light in darkness. And that's the challenge with homeschooling, is Mm -hmm. how do your kids become inoculated, as you were saying, from this worldview, if they're never exposed to it on any level? Well, we do have a responsibility to help them to understand this is the world you're going to run into. Mm -hmm. And And, and fundamentally, biblically, the responsibility for educating children is given to the parents. It's the parent, yeah. right. And so if you outsource that, which you can, as part of your, you know, in the same way that I outsource the primary care of my daughter to my to my wife while she's at home and I'm, and I'm here. Sure. If you outsource that, that doesn't alleviate you of the responsibility of ensuring mm-hmm. that that right. education is happening. And I think a lot of times what happens is kids get sent off for eight, you know, eight hours a day to, you know, secular, a secular, you know, instructor. And there isn't any intentional, hey come back we're going to we're going to discuss this mm-hmm. and exactly. the, and the the parents especially fathers taking ownership over okay now we're going to engage this worldview that you were yeah. that you were exposed to yeah. pray, um, praise god we have some faithful families doing oh, that sure. in the church oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and sure. you know like, yeah and uh, one like of your the, senior pastor and, that's right. and one of the examples <laughs> that we uh, a great example is uh, is uh, Jessica Zornosa i mean she yeah. she uh, was equipped really well by her parents to, to be in the public world. Yeah, um, yeah. no, it's a, it's a, yeah. It's a good... A yeah, good but I think uh, Josh's essential anxiety is a real one, man. Yeah. I mean, it's... I, I Look, I've had to have way more conversations about these things with my kids than, than some of you who's who have homeschool. I've had way more conversations that are that are in real time, and what I mean by that is a kid coming home saying, my friend thinks yeah, that they're reaction. this or that. Yeah. Uh, or my teacher is teaching this or that, I, and mm. and I would say that's a real anxiety. That's a real pressure that a parent feels. And if you don't, as Daniel said, take up that responsibility to be their primary yeah. worldview instructor, yeah. Yeah. then look, I can't teach my kids any math at all. My kids can <laughs> teach me math, uh, so somebody's got to teach them that, right? Um, <laughs> But I can teach them the Christian worldview. I can teach them how mathematical principles are grounded in the perfection of God and his ordering of the mm-hmm. universe. Yeah. And mm-hmm. those things are really critical. So, so yeah, yeah, I, I hear your anxiety there, and, I, boy, I feel it. Um, back to Marx. Yeah. Uh, if, I, if I can sh- just share one more thing. He says there on page 54, I'm going to skip around here. Uh, according to Marx, all forms of the human community become political. That, I think, is the yeah. fundamental uh, insight of talking about Karl Marx. He says on 68 and 69, he says, Marx has won. In our modern culture, he's won. Yeah. Yeah. For as soon as one side in the culture, co- cultural conflict politicizes an institution, the other side has no choice but to engage on those terms. We are yeah. all, in a sense, in that sense, Marxists yep. now. So... Everything from the Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, school sports. Yeah. It's all a battleground. Baking, yes. baking a cake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Baking a cake. Mm-hmm. What happens when all of our relationships get reduced down to mere political contests for economic dominance? This is mm-hmm. 
Mm. The tr- don't you think yeah. this yeah. is the triumph of Marxism now? <laughs> and the answer is, I will give Jordan Peter's answer. I'm not, mm. I'm not a huge fan of his take on the Bible, though I appreciate him. But I, I will say this. He says, this is what happens when you reduce all relationships to political um, tribalism and power. Yeah. You turn the world into hell. Yeah. yeah. And that's what we're experiencing in our Strive. culture so right now. This it's is actually, hell. This yeah. is going to be one of the questions <clears throat> I was going to save till the end. But to the table... <laughs> Can a Christian in good conscience in this society be apolitical? I think the gospel is in a very real sense. Okay, I want to hear your your opinions on this, because I might be wrong. I don't think I am. <laughs> Never heard he that. He starts every <laughs> argument like that. <laughs> but the gospel is political. It's a political message for the same reason that I gave yesterday in my sermon. I don't know if you all agree with this, but the gospel is a counter-imperial, subversive message to Caesar's rule. And if it is, it, if, if, the, if it's the gospel of me and my personal salvation, it's not political, because that's not fundamentally political. Yeah. If it's the gospel of the kingdom, that the king mm-hmm. has come to save me from my rebellion, which is my sin— and the consequences of that rebellion, which is hell, hmm. um, an irreversible judgment of hell, that is political. That's inherently political. That, yeah. that is going to have—and now, I don't mean political by meaning that it creates a party to join or it has a constituency that's not the church. Right. I, that's not what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I just mean it is inherently a message about a king and a kingdom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. James. Oh, man. Josh. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, I, I, I was just, I was just agreeing. I mean, Paul tells us we're citizens of heaven, and that's our first yeah. priority. And I agree, the gospel is, it's about a kingdom that's coming, and we're going to the world heralding the gospel of turn from your sin, repent, and believe in the King who is coming. Mm-hmm. If you don't, He is bringing recompense for everything you have done. Yeah. Um, and so we are proclaiming that. So can, going back to your question, Daniel, can you flesh that question out more for us? Yeah, where are you going with that? You know, uh, coming from Southern California, there's a lot of there's a lot of resentment towards the association between Christianity and conservatism, and and um, and so one of the uh, you know fashionable things to say was like, oh, I don't really do politics, I just oh, you know, yeah. love people, or I <laughs> you know, hmm. and uh, if Marx has triumphed in this sense, if Mar- if the prevailing prevailing cultural attitude is one of you know all relationships political the the you know the politicization of of once neutral institutions even though that the myth of neutrality is another thing Mm -hmm. um does the christian have does a christian have the uh the privilege to say hey i'm just not going to engage with politics um, is or, that what it means to be a responsible citizen? Or is is the is the cry of Jesus is Lord political enough? Because by implication, it means Caesar is not. Um, that we have to have some political savvy, just like we have to have some philosophical savvy, and we have to have some, uh, you know, some ability to engage. Yeah, man. Um, I, I hear what you're saying, and I, I resonate with what you're saying. I'm not a theonomist, and for those of you who are listening, 
Daniel leans in that direction. <laughs> <laughs> I lean away from that direction, <laughs> though I sympathize with many of their concerns. I do. I really Every, do. And I really mean that. And I sympathize yeah. with many of your concerns uh, about really recreating culture in the image of God. And I want that. I mean, I, I've told you before, I, that's, I, ideally, man, that's what I want. I want a Christian theocracy. I want a Christian mm-hmm. society. But I don't think we're going to get that until Jesus returns in the mm-hmm. premillennium. Uh, <laughs> right, no. uh, so let's not get into that. Oh, but my goodness. but I'm, I'm just saying, here's what I'm saying. Um, so I resonate with your concern there. What I didn't say yesterday in my sermon, and I think I probably should have said, and I'm going to say right now, is that it is true that the message of King Jesus, right, having whose kingdom has already been inaugurated, in his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of God. That's what the New Testament clearly teaches repeatedly, but it's going to be consummated at his second coming. Mm-hmm. It's going to be fully realized when he returns, okay, and he's going to, he's going to bring his world-writing salvation, okay? Um, until then, even though Caesar's kingdom is a sham, it's a sham in the sense that he claims to have Jesus's authority, but he does have an authority, yeah. Like uh, Caesar does have a kingdom, mm-hmm. and God and <clears throat> Romans thirteen does clearly say that God has uh, um, instituted those human governments and those human authorities. So He does have a sphere of authority. It's just when He's in trouble is when He steps out of His sphere yeah. of authority to bear the sword and bring retributive justice. That's when He's in trouble. When He wears the sash, King of Kinglings and Lord Lord of Lordlings, mm-hmm. you know that's Jesus's title. But Caesar thinks that's his. Yeah, and and mm-hmm. um, you know, so I would argue that Christians can't be apolitical mm-hmm. uh, because it is yeah. a gospel of the kingdom. But I would also argue from Second Corinthians ten that we don't wage war politically. That's what I was intellectually, yeah. emotionally. We don't wage war. The way that the world does. Yeah, we don't yeah. wage war to conquer uh, territory. But Christ has already said, "I've overcome this world." So we we hmm. we're political, but we're not seeking to advance a kingdom that God is uh, in a way that's outside yeah. of what God is doing through us through the evangelism. Is that what Paul world. means when he says the weapons of our warfare are not material, or they they're not, not carnal? They is that not. what he means? Well, I I think uh, let's take the same approach that you did yesterday. He's thinking in the Roman world. So I don't know exactly the Roman mindset. In the American mindset, in our day and age and culture, I would say I don't need to have a political party in a supermajority inside the houses of Congress, right? And that's, I don't need to have that to be political, to be advancing the kingdom. So I, that's applicable in our context. What would you say in the Roman context that means? Swords, rebellion, taking over, overthrowing. Sure, that's that right. Be? I think yeah. that he is explicitly disavowing the path of political revolution as a means to power, yeah. or as a path to power. Now, Jesus explicitly disavowed it in his own teachings, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. If someone strikes you on the face, turn your other cheek to him. If they, for, if a Roman soldier walks up to you and forces you to mm. carry his pack a mile, which is the, in context what Jesus is talking about, then you go too. Hmm. You go the extra mile. In other words, you win your political uh, rival, Yeah. Not with power over, but love. Conquer. Cruciform love. Yeah. Be like Conquer Jesus on the good. cross. Yeah, that's good. It's yeah. through sacrificial, self-giving love. Show them what the world is supposed to actually look like. But when we translate those principles now into a uniquely United States culture, 
I think we do have certain rights mm-hmm. that uh, G- neither Jesus nor Paul could have, in- or, or, or I would say neither Jesus nor Paul did address yeah. in a biblical context. Yeah. Uh, though certainly the principles of free market are, would are you, there in Scripture. Would you say They're this, in the, Ten the, the principle, actually. though, is still the same, that the true overcoming of this culture will be through acts of love, service, devotion, not oh. having a supermajority in the house. I, of I don't mm. think there is any overcoming of the culture. I think it's Ephesians chapter 6. What winning, I read yesterday over. was, yeah. yeah, winning over. But I'm just saying that, uh, the goal here is for the Christian to live Christianly yeah. and to pray his heart out mm. for the world in anticipation that the principalities and the spiritual forces in heavenly realms are going to always be assaulting the gospel, trying to stop the gospel, uh, that they don't have any authority to do so. But they have power, they have yeah. influence on governmental so authority. This actually, so this is the, but the follow-up to your question, though, is if we are, if there is a precedent for Christians to be political, how come the church isn't advocating for political parties uh, candidates and stuff Some like that. Some churches how, are. Well, I know, but how? Do, yeah. Why? Why do we stop short of that, though? Does that make sense? Oh yeah, I mean, that, that's the conclusion. Mm-hmm. This is, this is a discussion of spheres of authority. Like what what sphere of authority has <clears throat> the church been given? It's not to, yeah. to promote political candidacy mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. and governmental power. It's to proclaim the gospel, yeah. to disciple, to exercise you know spiritual discipline. Like uh, I agree with you hundred percent. Can I just interject? Go for it. <laughs> oh, okay. I agree with that. What you just said, I agree with 110%. However, caveat, the Christian who lives in the United States of America is still a citizen. Yeah. And God still expects that Christian, based on the principles, actually of Romans 13 that we saw yesterday, he still expects expects that Christian to be a good, I would say, personal political advocate for, for the, oh, yeah. the values of the gospel. I mean, mm-hmm. don't, don't we also think yeah. that's perfectly within biblical... Absolutely. For sure. No, mm-hmm. you'd be... You'd be in opposition to God to not do that. Right, right. So uh, I just want to say, back to your what you said about the Californians, we heard this in the state of Washington and North Idaho a lot, and you hear this from preachers a lot. I'm apolitical. Like my senior pastor used to say that. I'm apolitical. I'm not apolitical. I'm for the gospel of the kingdom, and by the way, the values of that gospel directly impact who I vote for yeah. and what values I vote for. And totally. I think there are certain first principles in the Bible that do translate into exactly. uh, yeah. p- political engagement. Well, so we want to encourage our people also to politically engage in ways that would further the gospel. I think totally. taking an apolitical stance follows a bit of the, I would say the world's influence to say there is sacred and there is secular. And yeah. there's two yeah. different... There's What's a, wrong with that? Well, because if everything, if God is, there is nothing, sec, everything is sacred. There's nothing secular that falls outside of the bounds of God's intended purpose. Yeah. And so we need to look at the and world. And it's engaging the world's worldview. It's, yeah. it's adopting yeah. the world's worldview to say, oh, no, this is here and this is here. You can keep this yeah, in your privates, right. but in the public yeah. sphere, you don't bring your faith into so, it. And that's what we need to count in, on. In being political... Hold on, I want to hear Ryan's, because he, he <laughs> just looks like he is just ready to burst. Just being patient. Um, to answer your question, can a Christian be apolitical? I would say no. And I would say that for two reasons. I would say one, um, based on what you guys were saying, uh, I think it is true that Jesus is Lord of Lords and Kings of King of Kings. And so um, our fundamental citizenship is in is in heaven and we await that final consummation we're looking forward to it 
And so we act in accordance with that. But two, and this is where I think Truman is going, I don't think the culture will let the Christian be apolitical anymore. If everything is politicized, yeah. right? You know, mm-hmm. 400 years ago, abortion was not a political issue. It was, it was a morality issue, right? Mm-hmm. Now it's completely political, right? So the Christian cannot exactly. sit back and act like they yeah. are not a part of this in some way. But the yeah. culture yeah. will tell them. That's what I was getting about, about the yeah. public sphere and private sphere. We can't be neutral, but they're going to tell us we can't bring our faith in, therefore you have oh, to yeah. adopt ours. Totally. So leave yeah. your faith at the door. When so they would say our standing. Has, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. But, but everything in the, creation, if, we, if we're reading Genesis 1 correctly, every single thing in creation and the Psalms, has performs a sacral function mm-hmm. of bringing worship and glory to God. God's cosmic temple. So, yeah. so here, how could we separate? Watch this. Watch this. Sorry, I go got ahead, a great. Daniel. No, 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 no. Daniel's <laughs> ready, man. This He's is a ready. Great segue. So, one of Marx's points, one of Marx's, you know, uh, fundamental tenets is this concept of alienation, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Especially alienation of the worker from the fruits of their the labor. fruits mm-hmm. of their labor. Mm-hmm. Right? What does that mean? I, I how, how, explain that. So the. The way that Truman puts it is great. Uh, the result of being okay, alien, you know, on uh, page 54, it's that concept of a guy works in a furniture factory, mm-hmm. and he'll never own one of the pieces of furniture that he creates. That's the alienation of the worker from the fruits of his labor. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it says that you know, the result, this results in an unpleasant feeling of what we might describe as psychological or emotional discomfort. Mm-hmm. So the politics of Marx is to address the psychological or emotional discomfort. That's that's kind of what has mm. it has transitioned to here as mm. Marxism as an economic theory has completely failed multiple times with I mean there's there's no doubt that it is a failure as an economic theory. It has shifted into political social theory. But that concept of alienation, mm-hmm. how the 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 way that the Christian addresses that is by working in a job with the understanding that their vocation is unto the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. That they're that they are working is unto the Lord, that it is good to produce whether or not yeah. we we eat from that yeah. production. So the and for the Marx, great, that's great a weak cop out. But the political yeah. engagement of the Christian looks different. Yeah. Instead of demanding the the destruction of you know the ownership of private property, uh, you know, the 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 the, the rise of the proletariat to, to control the means of production, instead of demanding that, it says, no, I find satisfaction right. in, in, in working work. the soil and working yeah. in doing this. Well, that's so, the word vocation. Great point. It, it's the word vocation and is that, Latin for call, which Luther was only, Luther was the one who freed that to everyone being able to have a vocation. It was only the clergy who had a vocation until well, the and that becomes And that becomes wow. a form of political protest. Yeah. Right, just mm. working a job and finding deep. Sa- I was talking with with mm. uh, Dane yesterday, yeah, and I was asking him, "Hey, are you like doing the thing that you're really excited about?" And he's That's like, a good question. "I'm really excited that my job allows me to work with yeah. the youth." Yeah, mm. I was like, oh, "Okay, cool, nice Praise answer." But but like your personal pleasure. But but you know, <laughs> is there like a project that you'd really love to work <laughs> on or whatever? And he was like, "No, I'm really looking forward to this job enabling me to like yeah, serve ministry. in the church." And yeah. I was like. <laughs> Oh my goodness! Like, even I have here. You are the Marxist. Yeah, even I have imbibed <laughs> oh. that, that concept of like you're the Marxist. Are you? You know, are you finding yeah. satisfaction? And here's a guy mm. who has who has found satisfaction in the Lord yeah. in doing a job and doing work. Yeah. Um, and it is so contrary to what you know. Generally, when you ask somebody, 
they're like, oh yeah, you know, I'd really rather be doing this. I'd mm. really find fulfillment. And wow. If yeah. I could be on this project. Mm. And, um, and so the mm-hmm. way that the Christian engages in their work, the way that the Christian engages in their family, the way that the Christian engages with their neighborhood, the way that the Christian engages contrary to this way becomes a form of political protest. True. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And political subversion. Yeah. Which is what you were talking about. Yeah. Uh, yesterday, how the, the gospel is a, is a fundamentally countercultural movement like yeah. the, the the church is to be a, a countercultural or institution right and 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 also as we said before we're to be good protestants meaning um we are to live according to the values of the word of god and the truths of the word of god which is a protest against our culture which is a protest fundamentally against that wrong-headed view of karl marx which is so wrongheaded, it's hard to even know where to start. It's like we'll start with his idea of where religion even came from. Well, he, yeah, he believes yeah. it comes from alienation. Mm-hmm. So our un, our inability to know human nature is our alienation from that created religion. Mm-hmm. So we tried. So it goes back to the. I'm glad you brought up alienation. I think that is accurate. So yeah, he derives right. religion right, right. as a form of alienation. Mm-hmm. We just need to feel better about ourselves. Yeah, in yeah. Some capacity. Yeah. Whereas I think Nietzsche is going toward the herd. Right, yeah. like he, mm. the opposite of that would be the way in which Nietzsche would be different mm. is that morality or sense of purpose or any sense of meaning really comes out of the herd mentality, mm. and then the goal is to just radically break away from the herd into into yeah. self expression. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, go ahead. Sorry. So Marx and Nietzsche kind of line up on this a little bit of. Um, on 55 where it says that the divine being is nothing else than the human being or rather the human nature purified freed from the limits of the individual man-made objects um, so and he's ideal, a true materialist version. right yeah and 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 again he's it's the sin of the garden they want to become gods unto themselves <laughs> yeah, but right. Nietzsche and Marx share that even though they there were plenty of things they disagreed agreed upon was that the human the the idealized form of humanity is the div- is truly the divine mm. it's truly the thing to be sought after and, mm. and worshiped and mm. treasured and delighted in and so any notion of the divine is just a mental projection then yes. it's just our projecting onto um the world our need yeah. for transcendence or our yeah. need for for that sort of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. but really it's mm-hmm. our own divinity that we need to find, yeah, okay. our own transcendence. And I think that's what you were getting at with Nietzsche and the herd, and it's basically saying, look, the Enlightenment has proved that God does not exist, you know, even building mm-hmm. off Marx, right? Nietzsche said we killed God. Yeah. 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 Not oh, just yeah. Still then basically saying, why is there still a religious influence? Why does mm-hmm. the, you know, why do we uh, act as if Yeah, there Nietzsche is was moral, deeply morality. fascinated yeah. by the problem of how it is that after we murdered God, yeah. Just killed him. Why can't we live however we want? Yeah, yeah. And in some ways, that's where we're at. And and so and so, why does God just still cast a long shadow yeah. on on the on the human being and on civil society? Uh, I think he did, along with Voltaire. These guys regularly quoted Voltaire. I think they just wanted to see the eradication of religion and God as a mental crutch that people just don't need anymore. Before we uh, before we move on to Nietzsche, yes, let's discuss dis- Marx some more. Discussing the, <laughs> the, the concept of alienation. Mm-hmm. Um, there, no, 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 no. This so listen. I'm not. I'm, Sorry, I'm we're no jumping friend, ahead, man. <laughs> I'm no friend of Marx, but Marx did have some legitimate critiques of capitalism. Okay, I was going to ask you about that. Is um, there a legitimate critique in here? But so the but the concept of alienation 
um, there is a legitimate truth to humanity suffering from alienation from the garden, mm-hmm. being in exile from exile. the garden. And the, the thing that, that gets me with Marx is that there is this sliver of truth that makes the poison more That's easy right. to swallow. Mm. Right? It's they the, see it's in the a spoon, dimly lit room. It's mm. the spoonful of sugar that lets in this, you know, this ultimately destructive philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is a, that concept of, of we do experience alienation. Well, it's a, I mean, Ephesians chapter 2, 11 and following, right? The, mm-hmm. That you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, well, Israel's people of God. So right. the Gentiles were alienated from that. And not mm-hmm. only that, there was a dividing wall of hostility. Yeah. So we're not only alienated from God, but we're alienated from our fellow man. And that's why Romans 5, justification, right? Mm-hmm. So then being justified, you have received reconciliation yeah yeah, good point that only through the gospel can that alienation be addressed right? so yeah. it's a real problem but he this guy just has all the wrong solutions yeah because he removed god from the equation he <laughs> he's removed god from the equation and he's also removed you kill god you kill human nature mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there is no human nature yeah you don't Untab- have an that ontology well, that's the unbound that's, that's prometheus unbound. Mm, yeah, that's but you can't point. kill god there's always a god mm. it just becomes humanity yes that's mm. right yeah no. Yeah, you just That's shift your allegiance and your worship in to yourself as now the new uh, the new self god. This, re- this reminded me of T4G where we were all at and Kevin DeYoung's The mm. World Has a Justification Problem. It mm. is constantly mm. searching yeah. for a way to yeah. seek justification and whatever means. I can see it in Marx with alienation. Mm. He is trying to justify the internal angst he even feels and the culture feels. He's trying to solve a problem. But mm. looking at his personal history, you can see where that's <laughs> coming out of. I mean, the guy is... Uh, the what? He, the guy's... The, first of all, he is the one of the most evil human beings. Let's his children starve because he won't get a job. Yeah. His mom, mm. his sister beg him to get a job, he won't. He's a moocher, like he just mooches off of his friends. He's a oh, Com- Engel. He's Communism embodied. What is, yeah, what is, anyone listen to these people? <laughs> so, so, someone who met him wrote about him and said it, it was like meeting a man who was possessed by a demon. Mm-hmm. Like he just looked like a gargoyle sitting on, an emaciated gargoyle sitting on a perch. I mean, here, here is a guy who is... He, he doesn't just have a philosophy of economics and political and politics. He's friendless. He doesn't have any friends. Mm. Everybody hates him. Mm. He hates everyone. That's what I wanted to say to people who are espousing Marxism today. Do you know if he were around and he were alive, he would hate you? He would revile you? <laughs> he dies friendless. He dies penniless because mm. he won't work. So we're talking about a guy who literally out of his own anger and sense of alienation and victimhood that he mm. was the, and victimhood that he was where he was at because all these things had been done to me right mm. and specifically that hatred towards the church is being exploitive of uh, you know um, mm. he was the original he was the original victim culture mm. yeah he was <laughs> that's where it comes from that's where it stems what well, stems from the devil but it really stems through his political philosophy um yeah, anything else you want to talk about with Marx, Dan? Well, and the, the other consequence of Marx is really the, the concept of the church went from being an institution of trust and mercy and you know, general, general goodness to now it's seen as it's an, it's an exploiter of people. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's fundamentally um, in his twisted moral system. That's yeah. definitely it's, true of him. Growing up as a, as a German in London, but growing up in the city of Trier, 
he's surrounded by beauty. Mm. He's surrounded by these gorgeous cathedrals, you know, like he, and his father converts from Judaism mm. to becoming a Lutheran, an old school liberal Lutheran. And so he just has this deep, he doesn't just want to burn the world down. He specifically wants to burn the idea of religious authority down. Mm. So the idea here is he's growing up surrounded by these icons of religious authority over him. Yeah. And now he's going to follow Satan <laughs> to cast that authority mm. off. Mm. And, and so there's just this deep-seated anxiety and angst and anger toward external authority. Yeah. So do you think yeah. he was a deceiver that then became himself deceived? Do you, do you want to? Well, he was definitely that. deceived. Yeah. yeah, and I and, and I think it's very interesting in the New Testament. Uh, John Piper brings this up very interestingly. Um, when the Scripture says that God sent them a powerful delusion, that's a very interesting statement because they were already deluded. In other words, God judges you with the thing that you must have. If you must have it, then God will judge you with it. He'll give you more of it. And I mean, so it's this thing where be careful what you wish for, because you might get it. Wow. You know? And in Karl Marx's case, he, he got it. Yeah. His, his aloneness, that profound sense of being alone, yeah. uh, he, he, he got what he wanted, wow. you know, in a sense. So I've, got, I've got one, pa- one yes, passage I go. want to read, and then I'll let you, I'll let you take the, the Nietzsche lead. On page 58, it says we should note three things here. This is after uh, the discussion of the abolition of religion is mm-hmm. um, you know, vital to, to Marx. It says, first, Marx regards religion as a human creation with no transcendent status, no necessarily abiding significance. At its most positive, religion fills a psychological need. The pain and the suffering that economic alienation causes are alleviated by the false hope of a life of eternal bliss hereafter where all wrongs are righted and peace and justice prevail. Second, this is not only meets the psychological needs of the workers, but also works in the interests of the bosses and factory owners because it enables them to bear the present woes and not rise up in rebellion. Third, this means that the demolition of false hope, the debunking of religion, is vital if the working class is to realize the truly desperate nature of its condition and then take action uh, in this world to rectify the situation. And the question that I have for us is how does bad preaching and teaching contribute to this? Hmm. Are you asking about my preaching in general? No, or I'm talking you, about... This is getting really personal. <laughs> I'm talking about... Uh, James? Things like the prosperity gospel. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Moral therapeutic deism. Mm. Yeah. Um, how has how has bad preaching enabled the rise of this well, to prominence? I think it follows mm. the same pattern. It starts with the individual, then moves to the who these over the individual, and then God ultimately. So bad preaching operates the same way. Let's focus on you. Let's focus on how everyone around you can help you, mm-hmm. and then it's because God wants to help you through those other people. Oh man! When it should be inverted, mm-hmm. yeah. who is God? Yes. Who has God put in place to surround you, and yeah. who are you um, in relationship to all of those people? Well mm-hmm. said. I mm-hmm. don't think I can say that mm-hmm. better. But yeah. let me just add this. Yeah, no, just <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. Very well said. Wow. I was going to ask Daniel to define moralistic therapeutic deism so for those who maybe haven't heard that term from Christian Smith. Yeah, so it's the uh, it's the concept that much of of what the the ministry of the church is um, therapeutic deism. It is this comforting concept that there's a uh, a God that is there for your benefit. He's there for your ultimate your, your ultimate good. 
you know, to, to what yeah. degree that is to, to help you manage emotional strife and, and you know, mental, you know, to, to manage the alienation of, of living in a, in, a, mm-hmm. in a fallen world. Um, and it has some attend morality to it mm-hmm. uh, that that ensures that you stay within the the uh, the vein of this therapeutic, mm. you know. Yeah. But it's yeah. that, but it's deistic in the sense that God's not super involved. Yeah, he's not he's not actively sovereign. He has wound everything up to operate this way, and you yeah. want to get into the you want to get into the flow of where he says yeah. he's the big man upstairs. Well, he's a divine come doctor. Come down every now and then if you need him. You need him. Ooh, Just making you feel heretical. good. Yeah. Yes. Making you feel good. Yeah. Good, good Absolutely. explanation yeah. of that stupid world. <laughs> but yeah, the way it, imp- it impacts bad preaching, just going to the prosperity gospel, since I am a former uh, prosperity gospel guy in a past life, um, I can tell you that, 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 that what you just read... All you have to do is put the words Jesus and Bible and, <laughs> and Word of God yeah. and those phrases in that paragraph, because that is essentially where they're coming from. It is just the, the mm. pursuit of material gain. Yeah. And, and that, though, is a supernaturalist worldview in which those people believe you have to defeat the devil to get it. The devil's got it. You got to mm-hmm. defeat the gev- devil. You got to take yeah. your authority over the devil so you could get your material prosperity. Mm. Yeah, that was what and I was, that's supplied in the atonement. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's uh, for an example, like we can think of David and Goliath, right? Some people preach oh, that yeah. as, oh, you, you got to face your giants. Yeah, you got to go out there in boldness and face your giants, and God will see you through. That's right. not what that story's about. That story's about a, a type not, of Christ right. that there is a there's a king who is meager and lowly to look at, mm-hmm. who no one will think anything of, who will come and defeat all. Yeah. Um, he Ooh, is king. Preach it. And so uh, you know, like it's it's a centered it's it's a man centered gospel. Yeah. And if we focus yeah. on us, man, like well, <laughs> there's man, no I, hope. Well there. said. I spent yeah. a lot of time in in a pretty not a pretty seeker sensitive church <laughs> in an incredibly seeker sensitive mm-hmm. church. And really, it was, I have a perspective on that. It was, uh, it was kind of pandering to the covetousness that is in all of us. Oh yeah, mm. yeah. I Pandering's want a good life. Yeah, <clears throat> give me the seven steps of financial freedom. Yeah, that will give me this good life. You have your best life now. You know, and uh, yeah. and all of the preaching was geared towards, hey, here's how you get the yeah. best result with your kid. Here's yeah. how you get the best result with your finances. Here's how you get the best result in your relationship. And mm. it was really just this, hey, I'm feeding this covetousness of yeah. I want and I want and I want and right. I want. Right, right. Just to defend the seeker-friendly movement for a second, you know, because I was a seeker-friendly pastor for 22 years in seeker-sensitive churches. Yeah, can I, can I put in a caveat there? Yeah. That church loved me incredibly yeah. well, mm-hmm. and, I, and I don't want to just dunk on it. And no, I, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure, sure. But you have a legitimate critique, and I'll just put it in this perspective. The seeker-friendly move, movement, every seeker pastor that I know wants to win people to Jesus. Sure. They want to legitimately bring them into a saving knowledge and a saving relationship with Jesus but the way that they go about it is to water the story down into these sort of tic-tac or ticky-tac principles that hang in midair yeah. that aren't really grounded in the story of Scripture. Mm-hmm. And so what you do in that movement is you preach the principles because you know that biblical principles are good for people. You attract them with those principles, mm. and then you lead them to the cross. It's just that 
after you spend so much time trying to turn the gospel into a, just a set of practical principles you can live by, you begin to forget the cross, mm-hmm. and you stop preaching the cross, and the next thing you know, the cross is just not central to your theology anymore, and because you've, mm-hmm. you've just sort of, it's evaporated. Well, it's the progression of we preach Christ crucified, to we preach Christ, yeah. to we preach, mm-hmm. and you leave, yeah, it just mm-hmm. keeps Well, it's also the Andy Stanley thing, if I may bring him up yeah. again. Um, it's also the deal about unhitching the gospel from the Bible. Hmm. You know, this idea that you can preach the cross and you can preach the resurrection apart from preaching it, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, according to the Scriptures. It's that Jesus was crucified and buried according to the Scriptures, that he was raised according to the Mm -hmm. Scriptures. So what you try to do is, eventually what you want to do is lead people to the Bible, but Mm -hmm. let's just start with the cross, or let's Mm -hmm. just start with the principles, Mm -hmm. and we'll get them there eventually. But it's like, no, the moment you divorce it from the Bible, you begin to lose it, yeah, because it isn't grounded in anything other than actual history yeah. yeah all right let's jump to nietzsche and the death of god yes. <laughs> so excited about this okay about jeff why don't can you i go really, okay yeah, uh, jump in on this. so with respect to nietzsche's madman <laughs> so he tells the story or he depicts this guy who's the madman who goes into the town square mm-hmm. and he begins to scream about the death of god we killed him and uh he calls all of them uh, that is the Enlightenment philosophers, murderers of all murderers for killing off God. Now, Truman states on page 62, if you flip over there, he says, you cannot dispense with God or shove him to margins, the margins, mm-hmm. or make nothing more than a necessary, make him nothing more than a necessary presupposition for morality. If you displace God the way Nietzsche tried to do, you kill him, then everything changes. Nothing, absolutely nothing, can stay the same. Most pointedly, there is no moral stability to the universe. There is nothing greater to which the individual must or even can be held accountable. There is no moral structure to human nature, no end in light of which all human beings should shape and direct their lives. We are free from all such constraints. Mm -hmm. And then he goes on to say on page 63, we might express Nietzsche's thought this way. Mm Here's the summary. Free from the burden of being creatures of God, human beings must rise to the challenge of self-creation, of being whoever they choose to be, be whoever or whatever works for you. You should feel no obligation to conform to the standards or criteria of anybody else. And I would say not, not on his view, not least uh, of which would be God. So then the question is, how then is the death of God also the death of human nature. Because there is nothing known as human nature that is pass, uh, tra- transcendent to all of us. It is completely up to the individual. Mm-hmm. Human nature is, there's millions, there's billions of human natures, not one. Oh, good, yeah. good answer. So that, uh, that's the death of it. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's not death of it in a title, it's death of it in a sense of corporate. Okay, yeah. good. When you just becomes so diluted that it's yeah. meaningless. Yeah, and when you take away much like you were talking about with the seeker-sensitive movement, or maybe not tying it back to the entirety of Scripture, when you take away humanity uh, being created in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, mm-hmm. that gives us s- the complete foundation of how to understand ourselves, you know, how to relate to one another. When you take away that, it's exactly what Pat said. Um, we create humanity in and of ourselves. We learn, we 
process as time goes on, like Hegel was saying. And so yeah, good. it ends up being whatever we want it to be. Great answer. This is, yeah, this is the, this is the uh, natural progression yeah. from Rousseau. When you talk about that concept of the noble savage of, you know, this is the idealized mm. human, um, is that ultimately it transcends to this, is that um, God dies in that framework, even though Rousseau tried to hold on to the, hold on to the concept of a, of a moral uh, absolute. Right, um, right. It's entirely impossible yeah. to do that. It's yeah. entirely impossible. And, mm-hmm. and the other thing, I mean, you probably go in there, the other thing that's just mind-blowing about all this is it completely undermines the incarnation and what Christ did. Oh, you don't yeah. have a human nature, taking on that human nature, understanding that in light of creation. Yeah, you have some major <coughs> issues when it comes to atonement, how sin is dealt with, all of that. And oh, oh man, you're so right. I so. mentioned mm-hmm. this yesterday, and I mentioned it at the top. The, the culture is still very much religious. They still very much practice religious practices. I mean, how do the people in Seattle, for example, who wash the feet of black people mm-hmm. and to confess their racism, how do they know to do that? That's religious. Hmm. They get that from Jesus. They get that from the Gospels. They don't know where in the Gospels it is. Hmm. But essentially what you have is the form without the power. You have the form without the substance. And so what you can get by practicing these sort of the vestiges of religious structures is you can get, again, catharsis, but you can't get real atonement. You you can't get that. Well, what would you guys say? Uh, there is no God. There is n- not really a human nature, at least not an image-bearing nature, and Mm. so how does the death of God killing God kill a human being then? Um, I would go farther than what Truman said, um, claiming that there is no moral structure, but um, and I find it ironic that Nietzsche goes on to make an imperative claim about how humans should act or what we should believe, you know? It's like, where is meaning in any of this if there is no God? Um, and so, like, what is a human? What is what is its worth? It's it's none. We're just matter in motion. That's right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Good. Mm-hmm. Well said. Yeah. I mean, if you Pastor. remove God from the image of God, we being created in the image of God, then we're creating our own image. And if you look within, because of radical corruption, you are left with emptiness and nothing. And there's nothing there uh, to build your life upon, to have meaning, to have purpose. So it's no wonder our world is full of anxiety and depression and That's emptiness right. all around. But a guy like Ricky Gervais would say this, and he has said this. Why do you Christians think that you have the moral corner on meaning and purpose? He would say, it doesn't matter that my life doesn't have any transcendent component. I think my life does have meaning, and I live that life as if it does have purpose. And the illustration that he is often, uh, often will give, is watching a movie. He goes, I know the movie is going to end, and when the movie's end, it's over. When the movie ends, it's over, right? But that doesn't mean I can't enjoy the movie and watch it and enjoy it while I'm in the midst of it. And, and he sort of uses that as an illustration for life. But ha- So how do you answer that? I mean, is that the Ecclesiastes, basically, you drink, be preparing for tomorrow you die? Like, <laughs> I think it is, yeah. Um, I mean, that's not... I would say that he thinks he has purpose and meaning, but he's actually selling himself short. Yeah. There's more purpose than well, he had. Well, but he can he, be the exception, not the norm. Well, he okay. does have purpose and meaning. That's, that's right. Yeah. He's, he does. He, he, is a, he is affirming, he's affirming the reality mm-hmm. of the Christian worldview, hmm. the biblical worldview. And trying to detach it. 
but he's denying the the, the foundation of it. It's what Josh exactly. was saying. The fact that somebody, the fact that Nietzsche made should statements, mm-hmm. ought statements, this ought to be done, mm-hmm. reveals that we have an intrinsic knowledge Good that point. there are that there is there is something fundamental. There there's a way humans ought to be. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that there he is, was an idealist. There is so. an idealist nature. Um, and but then you throw out the only thing that actually gives you genuine definition to it. Mm-hmm. Boy, great insights! All, all great insights! All I'm going to try to just paraphrase Truman because his explanation of this was so good, uh, and and it, it will sort of uh, echo what all of you have said. He said, "If there is no God, then men and women cannot be made in His image, mm-hmm. and if we are not made in His image, then at bottom." We have nothing more than a material ontology. Think about that. If you have nothing more than a material ontology, what Josh said was true. You're just matter in motion. And if all we are is matter in motion, then we are free from any and all moral constraints, save consent. Now, we brought up consent a couple programs ago, but then why think that consent is actually a limiting Abstract. principle? Yeah. Who, who's, says who? Hmm. <laughs> Says yeah. who? Who yeah. made up that rule? Right. Yeah. So we there, at some point we have to say there are rules. They are objective. And then we have to ask the question, what sufficiently grounds the objectivity of those moral obligations? And on this materialist, purely materialist view of Nietzsche, who who you're right, he was an idealist. He wanted to think that there was a sort of divine highest nature we could uh, uh, esteem, uh, you know, uh, attain. Um, but there's just nothing to sufficiently ground it on their worldview. There just isn't. This is where, um, the, this yeah. is where the question "by what standard" comes in, hmm. really, really helpful. And if you're discipling your kids or you're you're engaging in a conversation with somebody who holds this worldview, because um, it's not an antagonistic question, but to say, okay, by what standard are you making that claim? Like what? Are, like you're making a claim to. I should be pursuing my own happiness. All right. By what standard is that a good thing? Mm-hmm. And watch people realize that their feet are, you know, planted firmly in midair. Right. Um, it's a it's a great conversation starter. It's a great way to bring yeah. it back to I have a standard. <clears throat> it's a revealed one. It's a you know. Uh, yeah. um, and anyway. And their feet are planted firmly in themselves. Right. It's time back a couple weeks ago that the, the yeah. self is the authority. But then you just press it further. Okay, yourself is saying this. Myself is saying this. You know. Yeah. So and I'd, we're in conflict. Right. I'd, so I'd be yeah. interested yeah. in having a conversation with Nietzsche, yeah. and saying, "Oh, you know, the you know, these claims that you're making about the pursuit of your 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 Superman, your yeah. self actualization, is what is good, right? By what standard are you defining good? Yeah. Yeah. I I think on Nietzsche's view, we answer to no one except the herd, but then the Mm. goal is to radically break away from the herd Mm. in self-expression. But then, so then... why is it okay to punish anybody? Exactly. And, Mm. or why is it okay Mm. for, for society to do good? Right? So, so the question is what kind of society does (laughs) this Marxist and Nietzschean mentality produce? How should we think of acts of social altruism on this Hmm. on this view what what do we think what actually grounds <clears throat> the activity of doing good for the commonwealth now and not just myself because on this worldview i should not care about acts of altruism yeah. 
in the culture. In fact, he's pretty light on that. So, so then what kind of society does this produce if we also do not think about how we love our brother as we love ourselves? Well, even it's, it becomes what, uh, he describes it with Oscar Wilde. It's about being transgressive. Mm. That the good becomes actually doing wrong, doing yeah. wrong, violating the standards, violating the the principles and mores. Which is one of the reasons why modern art is so unbelievably <laughs> terrible. Yeah, is that the whole the whole purpose of yes. the art is to be transgressive mm. of beauty. Yeah, right. Because there's these. Because there is no objective and, uh, aesthetic and they, on their view, and uh, you know, in in art and in even in science now, there's this push of like, hey, let's be transgressive. Does two plus two really equal five? Yeah, I right. mean, really equal four, or does it equal five if we all agree that it equals five? Right? Mm. Do you still do you do you believe? And this is not in Truman, but as I was processing it, the transgressive nature of everything, whether it's in art, whether it's in cultural relationships. Does that all stem from having to make sense of guilt for the unbeliever, the one who denies God? What do you mean? What's the what's the so the source and experience of guilt for transgressing the common law of God that He's put in place? If that is true, then what I have to try to undo this guilt, and so I'm going to corporately encourage everyone to just claim that this is good. And so I'm going to convince myself. Do you understand where I'm? Yeah, kind of going I would say this? maybe like, for some, but and then I would say, you know, Scripture would say that their consciences are seared. You know, well, that's, that's what I mean by the so guilt. Like, yeah. like, I don't, I don't even know if they don't have the guilt at all. You know what I mean? So like, I don't even know if they're trying well, to they, yeah, address it. But I think they're just like, operating like, without God. No, my I would say it's like an operating system that's in their subliminal to use that. Mm. The hot conscience is seared. Back out. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So much, but but they have to express it. But like my daughter, I still remember the the first day my daughter lied to me, and I was you know <laughs> of course shocked and hurt and sad and all that stuff. But you were the, surprised at sin to thing, discover <laughs> she was a sinner. The thing that 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 stood out to me was one, I didn't teach her to do that, mm-hmm. and two, the reason she lied to me is because she knew she needed to be to be justified in my sight. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the lie was used to say, no, no, no. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's my righteousness, basically. <laughs> um, and so I do think there's a fundamental, so much of this is we have the awareness of we yeah. need justification. And so we try to tear right. down the standard by which, you know, uh, we're, we're justified in order to, you know, lower the bar so that we make it over. Or we try to say there is, you know, this is just an invention and mm-hmm. you don't need to feel this way. In right, fact, yeah. you feel this way because you're deprived <laughs> of your, of the fruits of your labor. It's not really because you have guilt. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I think like, it's interesting. I need other people to confirm that in me. So as much as the romantics and even Nietzsche and Marx want to divorce us from being a relation, have a relationship and others being a part of our environment, it seems that that is the, the transgression of Oscar Wilde. He's writing, he's conveying these things because he needs other people on his side too. He, he can't live independently as Even they so he says, oh, I don't care what oh, he yeah, thinks yeah. about what yeah. I write. He, he would say his expression of poetry or art or writing these essays, I mean, I don't know if you've ever read Oscar Wilde. Man, wild. he, he's, he's not just wild, uh, he's a he was a flipping genius. Hmm. He he was such a great writer hmm. and such an excellent wordsmith. I mean, it's just inspiring to read how good of a writer he was. And he was so expressive and poetic. 
uh, similar to Walt Whitman, but not not in that same lane, but just uh, also morally crazy. This is mm. why he dies mm. at the age of forty six of syphilis. Mm. You know, because he because of his sexual wandering, he he paid the price. I'll get to that in a second, though. Can I just finish Nietzsche here? Um, so the question then, if I can go back to the death of God, how can Christians an- answer the challenge of the death of God, which clearly was a premature pronouncement? on the matter uh, during the Enlightenment period. And, and, and I think here the answer has to be partly a little apologetics can go a lot a long way. Uh, I am a fan of apologetics, particularly cumulative case apologetics, some evidentialism as well. Um, but I think there are, I think practically speaking, we can give people arguments for God's existence. And there are good arguments for God's mm. existence. And so I'll just name really quickly five uh, or six. Uh, the first one would be the classic cosmological argument from contingency, which means that everything has to have an explanation of its existence. And the explanation has to be either in its transcendence, that is to say its non-contingency, or its contingency. It's either, it's either a made thing or it's a necessary thing, right? And the second uh, argument would be William Lane Craig's uh, now famous Kalam cosmological argument, which is based on the beginning of the universe. Everything that begins to exist has to have a cause, and it has to have a transcendent cause. And if the universe began to exist, which is the standard view in cosmology today, then the universe has to have a cause that transcends itself. And I think that's a good argument to give people. The third one would be the moral argument. We've actually talked a lot about the moral argument mm-hmm. this this podcast and last few, and that is that God is the best explanation for the existence of objective moral values and duties. If objective moral values and duties exist, God must exist because something has to ground those uh, beyond the herd, beyond us. And then fourthly would be the teleological argument, which is the universe appears to be fine-tuned, and it appears to be uh, the cosmological constant, or the fundamental principles of the universe seem to be tuned to infinitesimal qualities. It's like the watch and the watchmaker. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so that's kind of the old argument, but it's still a really good one. And I think fifthly, the ontological argument, which is Alvin Plantinga's argument, that if, if it's even possible for God to exist in any possible world, God has to exist in this actual world. Take that multiverse. That's my favorite. Yeah. So <laughs> take that multiverse. Uh, so, um, and then the last one I would add would be objective truth. Um, so at, at least some truths appear to be objective, right? So, so some things appear to be objective. I was really struck... Uh, when he made the statement that there's a there's a passage and I can't remember exactly where it is, uh, where one of these folks claimed that this is the truth, hmm. right? The fact that there is no truth is that's the truth, <laughs> and it's like okay, well, so you're at least claiming that one thing is absolutely objectively true, um, which means that your statement is false. It, it undermines your very statement. Um, so I think that practically speaking. We can learn these five or six uh, arguments for the existence of God and, and combat this idea that God is dead or God doesn't exist or God just isn't relevant. Like, he's not relevant to my moral expression. He's not relevant to how I live my life. And help people to see there are really good reasons to think that God exists, and there are really good reasons to think that the Christian God in particular exists. Mm-hmm. 
uh, because Jesus Christ has risen right. from the dead, which we're going to be talking about on Resurrection Sunday. Can't wait. Uh, any case, your thoughts on that? Evidences, arguments, good, solid reasons for why we think Nietzsche was just flat wrong. The Enlightenment <laughs> did not kill God. He's not even sick. He's not yeah. even hospitalized. <laughs> yeah. Doing just fine. Yeah, I, I agree uh, completely. I think it's helpful to know those things. I think um, the statement is right. Like, ob all, obviously, all of us understand that God is not dead. I think Daniel's statement from earlier is helpful. Um, you know, really, in the worldview operating today in the culture, he's not dead. He's just been replaced. Replaced yeah. with self, replaced with something else. Ignored. Yeah. You know, ignored, yeah. So, hmm. um, but talking about those things, giving a defense for the hope that's within us, yeah. um, and, and still understanding that, like, we're being faithful, we're... Uh, planting the seed, we're watering, and we're trusting God to give growth. You know, He's but I, I, I would say yes, that's true. Uh, I agreed, one hundred percent. We we have become our own self gods. We are the new idols. Like yeah. when Paul wrote Ro Romans chapter one, and he was talking about humanity descending into idolatry, and then just abandoning, uh, acknowledging God and replacing God with created things. He he couldn't have imagined that in our day. Every individual is their own idol, which wouldn't have been true in Greco-Rome. In Greco-Rome, you worshipped the pantheon. You, you worshipped your household gods. You worshipped yeah. your ancestor gods or Mithra or something like that, but you didn't worship yourself, mm -hmm. right? So the idea here is that now everyone is their own individual self-god, but I would say that there is a kind of death of a transcendent god. That, that, that in our culture is dead. Mm, yeah. People don't mm -hmm. believe uh, that there's a God who transcends me, who issues commands to yeah. me, who mm. tells me who and what and what purpose. More pantheism. Or... Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, well, and I think I think your your statement that there is a death of transcendent God uh, is correct. In the if this sounds familiar, Nietzsche's notion that morality so morality is rooted in in the God of the system uh, is really about taste is helpful in thinking about our current moral climate. This is on 64. Mm -hmm. um, so often the language we use confirms Nietzsche's perspective is not a, uh, is uh, now a cultural institution. So often we will speak of morality in terms of taste or aesthetics. That remark was hurtful. That idea is offensive. Mm -hmm. That viewpoint makes me feel unsafe. Notice that such expressions mm -hmm. do not make a statement about whether uh, matters are in hand are right or wrong. In fact, the underlying assumption is that the offensiveness or hurtfulness of them is identical with moral content. Right. The subjective response has become the ethical criterion for judgment. And I think that that is mm -hmm. proof that the transcendent God in our culture is dead. Right. Hmm. Because that is the majority of what morality is, is rooted right. in. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, so my feeling of having been offended by you is equivalent to, to your transgression of my morality. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What a great passage. That mm -hmm. was a good one. Uh, do we want to move on to Oscar Wilde? Whatever you guys think. Let's do it. Okay. <laughs> Mr. Fun, <laughs> as I like to call it. <laughs> uh, Freeform fun. So uh, Oscar Wilde was the epitome of the modern sophisticated sexual wanderer. And Truman states, I think this is on page 66. Mm-hmm. Christ's significance for Wilde. Now, this is very interesting, his belief, because he did believe in God, and he was a theist, and he, and he liked Jesus, at least for his own purposes. He says, Christ's significance for Wilde is not that um, 
uh, not that ascribed to him uh, by Orthodox Christian Christianity. Rather, it is the fact that Christ is the supreme individualist, the one who breaks with social conventions and expectations of his day to tread his own intentional path through the world. The call here is for the individual to break with the herd and be a self-creator, something that Wilde did with relish from his stylish clothes to his legendary witticisms to his sexual adventurism. So Wilde actually excoriated anyone who tried to take away his right to live with sensual abandon. Uh, But most of all, his view of radical self-expression and individualism is, I think that is literally the spirit of our times. It's considered obscene and outlandish or his life was considered obscene and outlandish for Victorian time, and I thought as I was reading this, in our time, he would just literally blend in. Yeah, probably, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, he would blend in on Grammy night, he would blend in on uh, yeah. at the Oscars. Yeah. I mean, this just is the spirit of our time. Yeah. So Wilde's approach to Jesus is enlightening, because now Jesus has been co-opted to serve Wilde. Jesus has been co-opted uh, for the project of huh. promoting an individualist yeah, who just bucks authority. Yeah. But again, back to bad preaching. Ba- bad How preaching. How many sermons have you heard where Jesus is presented as the as the noble rebel that yeah. we should pattern our life after? Mm-hmm. You know, like he, he exactly. Was, he was bucking the religious institutions. He was, you know, defying mm-hmm. authority. And there's there's truth to this. Yeah. But it becomes this thing of of okay. Christ is now made in my image. Right. Mm-hmm. He's now made to, to serve my purposes. We watched the uh, the Super Bowl last night, the He Gets Us campaign. Hmm. Yeah. It, it is playing towards that. Like, hey, yeah, it is. Jesus gets exactly who yeah, you are. Yeah, I kind of thought that too. Yeah. Exactly the way that you hmm. are. Hmm. Boy, Jesus really gets us, you know, in our hurting and our pain. And <laughs> no question in the New Testament, Jesus is very compassionate. Absolutely. You know, he looks at the hillside and he sees harassed and helpless sheep, mm. but they're sheep without a shepherd. Mm-hmm. That's why they're harassed and helpless. Yeah. Uh, and they need a shepherd. They need his authority. Yeah. They need mm. his truth. Good point. Right? And uh, so so we can't divorce it from that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Other, yeah I otherwise, it I just becomes a self I ton about uh, wild <clears throat> myself, but... I can't help but highlight the irony of this statement. Rather, it is the fact that Christ is the supreme individualist, the individualist who lays down his life for the sheep. Yeah, (laughs) the individualist who gives his life for humanity and cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. there is another cup, may it pass. Right. Uh, so what do we make of who, Wilde's worldview the of the pursuit of... who only does what the Father... What do we make of Wilde's worldview of the pursuit of art and pleasure for its own sake as ends and mm-hmm. of themselves. I think it's the natural mm-hmm. um, end point for a culture that is without any suffering or hardship. No, that's not saying we don't. But the Victorian era, era of the British Empire was the high point. They lived at the top of the world, top of the food chain, and he had the luxury to be able to live that kind of life. Right. So that truly can't be accurate for everybody, all time, everywhere. Right. So as what we've talked about, the affluence of our age two podcasts ago really has added to the day and age we live because people have time yeah. to consider all these things because of comfort is our primary experience. And, 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 and it's not that we're denying 
look, look, we criticize the prosperity gospel, we criticize this worldview here. Um, it's not that we're denying that we're prosperous. We we all enjoy that. Yeah. We not, we like having nice homes with bathrooms and plumbing and heat and air conditioning and comfortable cars. We come to church, we sit in comfortable chairs. Mm-hmm. It's not that we're becoming, uh, we have some morbid lust with monasticism or yeah. <laughs> martyrdom or something like that. It's just that what we're saying is, it's Romans eleven thirty six. This is how Paul ends that chapter. He says, for of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Mm. And this is what Oscar Wilde missed. Mm. It was like, dude, in, in your expression of art or expression of pleasure or seeking pleasure or anything else, mm. it's from God. Mm. It's unto God. It's for God, right? Mm-hmm. It's from Him. So, so th- it's for and unto the glory of God, and that's how the Christian lives. Yeah. The and Christian yeah. offers yeah. everything in his life <clears throat> yeah. to God's glory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And true pleasure is found there. We were created there. for that enjoyment in God. Exactly. When we're enjoying art or for yeah. the sake of art, it's an end in itself, as Oscar Wilde says. That's, you're selling yourself short. That's not what you were created for. Great point. You yeah. were created to enjoy and have pleasure in the God. You, you actually too. don't have as much pleasure. Right. And isn't this John Piper's whole life mission? Mm-hmm. What does he call it? Christian hedonism. Yeah. Christian hedonism. That's such an interesting title. Yeah. What does that mean? What does he mean by well, that? Well, Oscar Wilde was a true hedonist. Everything mm-hmm. was uh, done true for, hedonist, yeah. for pleasure of self. Right. But Christian hedonism it has the same aim. But my greatest pleasure is in serving and being beholden to God. Yeah. yeah. The, the ultimate chief, pleasure. Yeah. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And God is most glorified yeah. when I am most satisfied mm-hmm. in, in him. him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like C.S. Mm-hmm. L- Piper will quote C.S. Lewis a lot. Of the problem is not that we are, um, I forget what the problem is. Oh, that's not good. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, the, the problem is that we're too easily pleased. That's, that's right. We're playing in the mud. Right. And that's what I was saying is Oscar Wilde is playing in the mud, and he's like, oh, this is this is it. We're kicking around But we were created for so much and, yeah. more. You know, yeah. pleasure um, and all these other we things. We are created yeah. to glorify right. God. Yeah. yeah. In, mm-hmm. in his right hand, there are pleasures evermore. Yeah, amen. And, and, back to, and that's back, what he missed. And back to Patrick's statement of you're going to serve somebody, mm-hmm. right? Oscar Wilde is art for art's sake. <clears throat> you're literally serving art. You're, yeah. you're serving this thing that is... Isn't that idolatry, though? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but that's the thing. Like it's not that yeah. he was free. He was serving. He was in servitude. It's the deception to of something. autonomy that I am autonomous mm. from any and everything. Mm. That's a that, well. That's self deception. I am not autonomous. Right. I'm beholden to things around me. Mm. Uh, oh man! And th- this that segues very nicely into him dying. And I do want to bring this up. <coughs> I, I want to close this on a pop up. Uh, just a really upbeat note. Um, okay. So dying at the age of forty six likely from syphilis due to his sexual adventures. Hmm. How does his death at such a young age from sexually transmitted diseases speak now of a code that was written into his body? Hmm. Hmm. He, he not only lived in rebellion to the expressed law of God, right? The, com- yeah. the decrees of God. The and this goes back to, the, to Exodus 20, the Decalogue. Yeah. Yeah. Do not commit adultery, yeah. mm-hmm. right? That's what God said. But then again, God hasn't <clears throat> just given us the law on the tablets. Mm-hmm. He's given us the law in the heart. And he hasn't just given us the law etched in our heart. He's given us the law in our bodies, yeah. which means that in, in nature, in our very natural bodies, 
uh, is a constraint that he's given us. And so this idea that we cannot just wantonly pursue uh, lust and reckless sensuality, uh, Wilde received in himself, as Paul would say in Romans 1, the due penalty for his transgression. Yeah, yeah. And so I want to bring this up. Very gauche opinion. Sorry, I don't say opinion. I'm just saying. (laughs) It's Paul. No, I I, I get you. I'm just saying in the culture, that is a... Gauche? uh, Yeah, like totally out of fashion. It's just out of fashion. Horrible thing Mm -hmm. to say. It's a horrible Mm -hmm. thing to say to someone, but it's true. It's true. Listen, if you like to fly around in those wingsuits... And you like to fly through canyons, you know those yeah, flying squirrel yeah, okay. suits. Calm down here. I actually want to do this one day. <laughs> <laughs> and and you do this routinely, and you, and you like to come as close to these rocks as you possibly can get. Well, hey, there's a natural law built in there. It's called the law of gravity. It's called the yeah. law of whatever. And uh, and these physical laws are bi- and so there are also natural laws built into the body. Yeah. In which God says, "Listen, this you're you're in defiance now of the last line of defense that I can give you. I've given you a moral obligation, a command, yes. right? I've encoded it in your very spirit, so that you know, even in your rebellion, you know yeah. that you're guilty of transgression. And then I've actually put these things in your body to say you can't go that far. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and then so 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 do we have a message here for our culture?" Well, to I, say, because this way, is where his book is going. Yeah, and I think Wild, Wild bypasses that in the statement that he makes on 67. This was shocking to me. A man cannot always be estimated by what he does. He may keep the law and yet be worthless. He may break the law and yet be fine. He may be bad without ever doing anything bad. He may commit a sin against society and yet realize through that sin his true perfection. And, uh... Wow. Hmm. My... That that means that the, <laughs> by, by, this blew my mind reading it. Um, but you hear this all the time with, "Well, my story is what makes me who I am today. It is my perfection. It is the thing mm. that has perfected me." Sure. Right. And so, even the consequence of it, your physical body is is suffering the consequences of what you've done. No, this is just my. This is just my becoming. This yeah. is my becoming wow. the perfected mm-hmm. being. Mm-hmm. Right, and mm-hmm. dying early, dying before you were 50 years old, and yeah. unnecessarily. I also think of, uh, uh, who's, who's the guy that was the lead singer for Queen? Freddie, Freddie Mercury. Mercury. I mean, if you listen to their songs, Freddie Mercury was one of the most brilliant artists, uh, one of the most fantastic rock and roll singers of all time. Mm-hmm. I mean, just a moving, powerful voice. And he killed himself. He killed himself which is homosexual orgies, you know? And that's really unfortunate. But I think as the church, we, we actually have a message for the culture, which is to say, hey, listen, God loves you enough. Yeah. Uh, God, God loves you, um, but he loves you so much that he, he wants you to conform to his word. He wants you to conform to his moral law because it's actually good for you. It's actually more mm-hmm. pleasurable and to walk with God and you're worth more than dying at 46 of syphilis. You, you yeah. are. You're more valuable yeah. and, and possessed of more dignity being made in the image of God. Yeah, yeah. Than to... Yeah. My mm. hope out of this, like I said, it's a depressing chapter <laughs> when you get to the <laughs> end. Yeah. But yeah. how we're teaching our kids 
not just mine, but at a church through the catechism we've been doing, what's our only hope in life and death? Hmm. That we are not our own, but we belong to God. And how do we tease, what does it mean to belong and to tease that out? And belonging is not a, through Marx, that's a lens, of, lens only of oppression. Hmm. But through the Christian worldview, it's a lens of blessing. And so teasing out what are the blessings of belonging to okay. and for and from God. Well said. Mm, well good. said. Yep. Well, on mm. that note, right on. Right on. Great Thanks, show. guys, for another let's go to lunch. discussion. Let's do it. Let's get some food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's go to lunch. Uh, thanks, everybody, for watching, and bye-bye. Bye.